Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Welcome to Cut Through Vine for March 8, 2020. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Join me as always. Welcome, Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right. Um, still daylight, but evening it is. And we're going to have, about 20 minutes into the show, uh, former president of the Young Democrats of America. That's probably just one of the things Billy Joyner's done. But Billy's going to come on and no. uh, just discuss a number of political topics with us. He was yeah. never president of the Young Democrats of America. He was president of the Young Democrats of Georgia. Okay. Look down on his uh, LinkedIn page, but um, uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, anyway, um, but we'll talk to Billy in a little while, and until then, we've got more than enough to discuss um, you know, just so many topics and so many exciting topics and so many scary topics. I mean, you just, you know, it runs the gamut. And we're going to start out with one that I think leads into something more. Uh, late in the week, I want to say it was on Friday itself, uh, even after lunch, you know, when you really want to, you know, uh, not have something on the front page of a weekday paper, Donald Trump has um, removed his third chief of staff and then named his fourth chief of staff. So he now has more chief of staffs than wives. Um, and Mick Mulvaney is out. I believe he was acting, and I, I don't know if he ever got the full designation, although he had held that uh, the chief of staff job a little while. And now Mark Meadows is in. Um, I know Mark Meadows was not going to run for re-election. Um, I, I don't know if he kind of thought this might happen or, or what, but they've changed um, chief of staffs, and really in a, a kind of a critical time, not talking about the election, talking about what's going on with us, but let's not um, get into that part. Let's just talk about the chief of staff uh, part of this thing. Um, Catherine, were you surprised that this move was made? I can't be surprised by anything anymore. <laughs> it's just like, oh, another crazy thing that has happened in the, in the administration. But, you know, Mulvaney was uh, interim, the whole interim anyway, so it was bound to happen. It just seems like, a, um, you know, in the middle of a, a you know, national international medical crisis and uh, this soon before the election, it just seemed like a, um, ill-advised change. Yeah. Um, Tim, uh, kind of, you know, were you surprised? And and what do you think this will mean, this change? No, not surprised at all. It, it was an open secret that it was coming. Uh, Trump has been making staff changes since the impeachment trial ended. He's retooling again, getting ready for 
the election. Uh, it, it was thought that Trump didn't like the way that Mulvaney handled the impeachment. Uh, he had even considered, we now know, replacing him while it was ongoing, and some, some of his other aides talked him out of it. They told him it wouldn't look good while that was going on. Uh, it's almost like he can't stand to keep the same people for any length of time out, outside of a couple of aides. I mean, all the rest have been changed, and some of them multiple times. So he gets reassigned as the special envoy to Northern Ireland. Boy, there's a, a designation that could not be further from the political action, I guess, in Washington. They say, by the way, that job has been vacant since Trump took office. Mulvaney will be the first person in it. Uh, Mark Meadows, Trump loves him. He talks to him several times a week. And Trump's kids like Mark Meadows, too. Um, and did you notice that when he named him, he did not use the word acting? Uh, so indicating that, that he might have his guy for the long term there. I, I, I guess we'll just see. It's, it's another loyalist that he's put there that do exactly what he wants, you know. So, and by, by long term, I hope you mean uh, through the, say, third week in um, January. Hopefully that's what <laughs> long term means. Um, but, yeah, and, and Mark Meadows, it's really interesting how, you know, Mick Mulvaney, he gave up a congressional seat to take this spot. Jeff Sessions gave up a Senate seat to take this spot. And then Donald Trump sours on him. And there goes their political career. Now, Mark Meadows decided he wasn't going to return, so I guess he's not risking as much. But if you're a um, sitting you know, member of Congress, a sitting senator, and Donald Trump taps you to take over a spot, Catherine, do you think you'd be pretty reticent to do it at this point? Absolutely. I would be, but... I don't think there's much, if you're a if you're a loyalist there's not much saying no. You don't have that opportunity. Yeah, I don't um it just seems like it's uh, kind of the kiss of death if you have something to uh, risk a seat that you could probably win um time after time if you're enjoying it now. I mean there are members of Congress retiring without any future plans just cuz they're tired of what they're doing. Um now let's talk about how you know, Tim, you mentioned he thought about doing it during the impeachment. Well, that was a, a personal crisis for Donald Trump and his administration. Now we're in a American crisis seems to be looming, um, that one that could really – it's really fe- affected so far all across our country and will probably get worse before it gets better because that's just how um, diseases like this spread. And he's changing his chief of staff – Seemingly political reasons. Um, what kind of message does that send about how he's handling uh, this crisis? Well, I, I don't think he sent a very good message <laughs> about yeah. handling this crisis. Uh, he's uh, made it into a political football, and you 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 sent us the the, the poll from Rasmussen that said that sixty percent of of Republicans right now think that the Democrats are using this as a tool against Trump, this coronavirus, and uh, talking it up. So Trump's going to do the opposite. He's going to talk it down. 
Um, and and that'll work with the bass for a time. But but as the the th- the thing this thing progresses, it, they're going to have to let that go. The virus has no politics, so it's going to continue doing what it's doing. I hope it's not as bad as feared, but uh, at some point, reality is going to have to be met, especially when he's saying one thing and public health officials are saying the opposite. Yeah, well, and Kathy- he's saying one thing. He's saying one thing, and his vice president is saying another. Yeah. Which is what oh, definitely. Like that cruise ship where Mike Pence made a decision based on CDC medical information, and Donald Trump overruled him um, because he didn't want the op bad. Um, no, you know, that it was not. That. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't think it was good for the numbers for him. You yeah. know, the numbers are the numbers. It, whether they're on a cruise ship or they're not, they're still the same numbers. They're still the same people who are sick. Some of them American. So, yeah. Yeah. The whole thing. Yeah, I, I guess then he, because I guess there was that that uh, ship that was um, in in a different part of the world that they actually listed that line item as a separate, uh, like its own country, if you will. And I guess maybe it would <laughs> trickle into Florida or Tennessee or Georgia's numbers or, wh- or whatever, oh, uh, where these people, geez. you know, where all the crews might have been from. Well, let's um, well let's get 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 back into that with um, the fact that it's an optics thing and, and what that looks like. Um, it, well, how does this? You know, to me, there's there's kind of two strands this election is going to be on. One is ideologically. You know, where do you fit ideologically on the spectrum, and where do you think Donald Trump and the Democratic nominee fit? But then there's a competence band, and we know that Donald Trump kind of suffers on that band um, with a lot of Americans, not just Democratic-leaning voters. To me, Tim, this seems like this is going to reinforce that he's not competent to handle this crisis. Um, Do you think that becomes the biggest issue? Well, it certainly could if the crisis gets out of hand, like, you know, um, some other crises affected presidents, like, you know, the flooding of affected Bush uh, right before the midterms uh, back in, in the middle of the last decade. Uh, like I said, though, they're trying to talk this thing down. You know, Trump himself called it a Democratic hoax. Uh, his supporters have fallen right in the line. Go all over social media, and you'll see them saying stuff on their on, on their pages in different places, like it's just like a cold. People need to quit panicking. Uh, they're throwing up these cute little charts uh, comparing uh, this virus to the flu, and, and you, you know. At some point, though, if it gets worse, we'll have to come back to we were not prepared. Uh, This president had gutted the CDC of its ability to do things uh, by freezing hiring and getting rid of whole crews and stuff like that. And the big thing, if this thing affects strongly the global economy, well, the guy at the top 
is going to have to answer for that, and that is all there is to it. When people get their pocketbooks hit, they're not going to be interested then in hearing what he has to say about this. Yeah, and that'll come later, and that obviously is a a secondary concern to people's actual well-being. Now back to that poll, and I was going to try to you know kind of frame a question and a point there. I was kind of reticent to send a um, Rasmussen poll because at times they're um, not the most reliable source. But I thought that one was kind of relevant because they usually, in partisan polls, be pretty bad. But that was just among Republican respondents. But I guess there's two ways to look at that. Is Do you think that this was more um, Republicans think that the coronavirus is real and it's just being used against – um, you know, Donald Trump, kind of like, you know, a hurricane relief or something like that. Or this is more of a, it's fake news, it's a total hoax, and it's really nothing. And um, the media somehow made it up or, or completely blown it out of proportion. Uh, kind of like, you know, the flat earthers and the folks that don't think the moon landing was real. Catherine, what did you kind of ascertain out of that poll? Well, I mean, I think it's really important for everyone to remember that you can talk about the numbers, but at the at, at the bottom of those numbers are people who are sick. I mean, you can't really deny that people that – I mean, I suppose you could, you could say that all these numbers are made up and that there really aren't, you know, five or six people in Fulton County who are suffering or how many they've now found in uh, your county. I mean I, – I just I think it's pretty uh, cold-blooded to suggest. I'm, I'm talking about these Republicans to suggest that this is just like a cold or it's it's a hoax is uh, is is uh, pretty cold-hearted in my in my mind. And well, I, I mean, think it's more. I think it's more that they. I don't think they don't believe there's a illness. I think it's just that they feel like the um, Democrats or the anti-Trump people are um, blowing it out of proportion, which is well, I mean, uh, not at uh, all you, the case. You would think that, but I mean, this is a party where a portion of the people in that party listened to Alex Jones, who came on the air and said Sandy Hooks was a you know a hoax. Um, that it was staged, and then um, you know you have climate change data showing that you know pieces of icebergs are falling off the size of Malta, and it's not real; it's just you know made up. And so, given the lens of of you know science and news denial, I, I can't be a hundred percent sure. Unfortunately, Tim, your thoughts. Oh, I I think they pretty much think it's real. They just don't think there's much to it, and they think that the Democrats and the media um, are ganging up and using this yeah. as an opportunity to uh, jump on President Trump and talk it up as a campaign issue and make it a hundred times worse 
uh, than it is. And, uh, you know, Catherine, what she said, right, there's people involved here. You know, I, I hope with every fiber of my being that the president does a wonderful job uh, him and his folks in containing this thing, and it doesn't turn into something much worse than than it already is because it's spreading very quickly uh, all over the world, and people are dying, and, you know, it is a genuine thing, and nobody's panicking. I don't see anybody panicking, uh, but to express concern uh, is different from panicking, and to ask questions of your government leaders, like you know, are, are we prepared? Is there enough test kits available? Are they moving toward a vaccine? Uh, how much time are we talking about? And what should the public do in the meantime? Those are legitimate questions, and he ought to answer them just like every last other president answers them. He don't get a free pass here because he's Donald Trump. I'm sick of him thinking he gets a free pass on everything, and if anybody dares to question him, then then they're, you know, the worst enemy of America. I'm sick of that. It's nonsense. There's, well, there's when he announced that... You know, Mike Pitts is going to be spearheading the effort. They had um, another member of the cabinet that's typically in charge of these things with, with health issues. And there was a disagreement about who would actually kind of spearhead certain portions of it. And Donald Trump walked off like the whole thing's over. And it's this critical um, decision. Now, one thing, talking about the media, what sources are going to get, it's always good even though I don't really trust Fox News as a source, what are those people seeing that, that rely on that for 99.9% of their percent of their news? And so I looked over to their, you know, their website page because that's more tolerable than the actual news channel. And it's by and large the main stories are all about the um, coronavirus, and it's handled as a, you know, a medical. You know, issue. It's not oh, people are making stuff up. It's you know the the cruise ship and everything you need to know about it, how it stacks up to SARS and MERS, and something in Connecticut and um, hygiene product supplier running out of hand sanitizer. They've never seen anything like it, and it goes on and on. So if Donald Trump's base, if the Republican base is seeing Fox News handle this as a legitimate health crisis. That's going to be harder to frame it as a hoax, isn't it, Catherine? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's it's yeah because yeah. they see that and then they hear the president, but they're going to listen. Yeah, to I mean, but they're handling it much more serious than the you know uh, than Donald Trump is. Um, they're they're doing a better job than he is as far as what they have to do with it, which is cover it. Um, they're covering it much closer than to ABC.com and MSNBC and CNN would compared to other issues like, say, you know, the impeachment trial. Um, Tim, uh, what's your thoughts on what the right gets from their media sources on something like this and how it is more in line? Well, it 
it, it is interesting the things that you have said that 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 Fox News is, is saying in their online reporting. Um, regardless of what anyone in the media or our government is saying, at some point as this thing spreads, everybody is going to know somebody that's been affected by this. Exactly. And so there's not going to be any denying it. David, right there in your county, there's been a huge story about someone, um, a professional person who's been, you know, infected with it and is in isolation in your local county hospital. There's been a huge story. Those, those And a lot of people know that person, is, is my understanding. So, you know, those sort of things, when it gets personal like that, then there will be no plausible deniability or, or, or any of that because people are going to know it's a real thing because they know somebody that's affected or they know somebody who knows somebody. Uh, that That's just the nature of, uh, of this thing and, and what's happening. Yeah, and they've actually run tests on two more individuals at the other hospital yep. in Rome. So, um, yep. you know... Uh, you know, no conclusive information, and obviously there's probably a dividing line between HIPAA and uh, the public's right to know about a health crisis. But now we're going to switch gears because we kind of planned it out this way anyway. We're going to welcome in our guest, I believe, for the first time to the Cudsey Vine, and if it's not the first, it's been a long time, uh, Billy Joyner. Welcome, Billy. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yes. Well, um, I know that, you know, back when we first started the show, we may have had you on, but I, I, it's hard to look through, I guess, you know, 12-plus years of uh, shows now. Um, tell our listeners about your past with politics, because you've had um, some different roles throughout the years. Yeah, it's it's been a, it's been a meandering journey. Um, back in, uh, I guess, uh, mid-2000s, uh, I was – Got involved with the Young Democrats, the University of Georgia, uh, ended up being the president of the Young Democrats of Georgia for about three years. Uh, throughout that time period, even before then, I was a committee member of the Democratic Party of Georgia, uh, got involved with, you know, most of the campaigns in, in, in DeKalb County. So, you know, worked with Steve Henson, uh, current, you know, Senate minority leader, and Michelle Henson, a member of the House of Representatives, and um, you know, worked on local campaigns out there for a long time. When I got out of school, I, uh, which would have been about the same time, I started up Yellow Dog Consulting with Tim Carroll and Paige Gleason, and we ran um, local campaigns, a couple of congressional races, a couple of statewide races in Georgia for several years. Uh, did that till oh, 2008, 2009. Um, and, um, yeah, about that time, I was like, you know what, I think it's time to do something different. So I went to law school, and uh, and, and, and disappeared from the state for a minute. Uh, uh, and now I'm, I'm back, uh, you know, I'm a trial lawyer and, uh, got an office up in Sandy Springs and, and, and getting, getting back involved slowly, but surely. Yes. Well, um, I know you've been posting a lot, uh, on Twitter and other places, your thoughts. That's why I thought it was pretty engaging. And you've been, I guess, one of the more vocal, uh, Georgia based supporters of Pete Buttigieg, just kind of tell us, um, how do you think he went from a mayor of a, a medium-sized city to a real factor who 
seemingly won the Iowa caucus and did, you know, quite well for himself. How was he able to um, kind of outpunt the coverage, if you will, in some ways? Well, I think, you know, it's interesting because, you know, when I was doing all that political work in the mid-2000s, late-2000s, you know, there was a big emphasis on the youth vote. And, you know, I was I was a board member of, of Young Voter PAC, which is a national PAC that did a lot of work with millennials and trying to get millennials out to vote and things like that. And, you know, when people say millennial, they think young people. You know, but I'm a millennial. I'm pushing 40. Uh, and so, you know, there's, there, there's a group of us that have never really had a voice, have never really had that kind of, you know, someone standing up and saying, you know what, it's, we're, the, it's, the baby booners have had their chance and they've screwed everything up. And so, you know, it's time for us to move on and do something different. And I think what, what, what Mayor Pete was able to do was to pair that desire, but also with this, like, we're actually going to talk about issues differently. We're actually going to talk about politics differently. We're going to, we're, we're going to work for generational change, but it's going to be a meaningful change. You know, we're going to approach policy be, you know, based on how it affects individual people. So instead of like, you know, we're going to come up with a good paid family leave policy, like, no, let's talk about, you know, how do we make America better for women, for single women, for, 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 for moms and families? How do we make America better for disabled people? You know, if you go to his website, you look at the way he packaged his policies, this was what it was about. It, it was it was about how do we create a sense of belonging and community for these individual people, which was something that people don't really talk about, at least, you know, heretofore, you know, we didn't really have a, um, a politics based on, on these groups of people necessarily. And, and, and I think that Pete was able to really get into a, uh, you know, to, to, to kind of spark the imagination of a lot of people and, and, and by doing it differently. Um, you know, I was always a big fan of his message of we need generational change. We need fresh leadership. We need new ideas, but like legitimately new ideas, like we need to approach the problem differently than we have been in the past. And I think that that, that really did capture a lot of people's imagination. And, you know, it's a credit to his team as well. I mean, he had an incredible communications team and it's a credit to him as a candidate. He's an incredibly compelling, charismatic, intelligent man and, you know, has a great story and, he has a wonderful husband and a wonderful family, and so I think a lot of things kind of lined up. But, you know, if you want to pin down the politics of it, I really think it's about just having a completely different approach. Yes. Well, now you mentioned, um, you know, voters younger than baby boomers. Now, I don't want to talk about, you know, the older millennials, but that 18 to 29, that group that you served when you were working with the um, president of the Georgia Young Dems, and then I guess you were um, – you had a role with the um, national uh, YDs, administrative director, those younger voters mm-hmm. that you were targeted. The Bernie Sanders campaign, that's kind of the um, one of their real building blocks is getting young voters galvanized. And on Tuesday, um, young voters didn't seem to turn out in much different numbers than the past. It was the oldest voters, seemingly, that I guess were the uh, bigger turnout voters for Joe Biden. Um, why is that group, even if they get into Bernie Sanders' message, so difficult for him to turn out? Well, I think part of the issue here, and, and you know, I may be you know revealing a little bit more about you know what I think of each candidate here, but you know, <clears throat> it wasn't just 
like young voters didn't turn out on Super Tuesday in kind of a historical way. Like they made up about 13% of the electorate from one of the exit polls that I saw. And that is an amount that is not just, I mean, that's bad. That's, that's historically low. And so obviously, you know, there's a lot of polling out there, a lot of data that shows that young voters have been siding with Bernie Sanders, at least the ones who are showing up. But I think what you can really glean from this is that younger voters don't need a, a, a radical progressive to get them engaged. They don't need somebody who is, you know, particularly, uh, 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 you know, you know, super progressive, super liberal, what have you. You know, what young voters need, it, it, you know, politics, I think, is really much more about personality than, than, than it's about policy oftentimes, especially when we're talking about running for president. And if you look back and you look at, like, you know, Barack Obama when he ran for president and Bill Clinton when he ran for president, two presidential candidates and campaigns that were historically uh, 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 notable in their ability to push the youth vote. I think that a lot of that had to do with their personality more than it had to do with their politics. I mean, Barack Obama wasn't particularly pushing anything crazy, you know, you know, uber progressive or anything like that. And certainly Bill Clinton wasn't. But I think that because of their personalities, because they could connect with young people in a way that a lot of other politicians couldn't, that I think that, you know, that that's really what pushed them. And Bernie Sanders just like he's got the policy there that'll push some people, but his personality is not one that's really going to captivate folks in mass. You know, he's got his, he's got his like, you know, 30%, 35% that are, that are really, you know, uh, hardcore for him. But I think that, you know, truly to, to, to be that kind of a movement politician, you need to have a personality that is attractive and, and a personality that, 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 that springs people to action. Um, and I don't think we, we, we really have had that this year, um, which, frankly, as a Democrat, is, is a little uh, concerning to me. Yes. Well, I'm going to um, let that be my last question. Pass it to Catherine, and she'll pass it to Tim for some more questions. Catherine? Hi, Billy. How are you doing? I'm like doing great, here, Catherine. How are you doing? Good. It's <laughs> been a minute. Yeah. We, we have, we, we, you've been living here now for however long, but I still haven't had a chance to see you. We'll have to fix that. Anyway, um, you know, one thing I I, uh, I think that you you almost touched on is that uh, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, when they were running, they had a positive outlook. You know, hope and change, and whatever whatever it was, whatever magic sauce Bill Bill Clinton had. Um, and I think that uh, Bernie Sanders is almost the opposite. He's very, I feel that he's very negative. And I think that is, I think some of the issues that he talks about are attractive to um, young people, but as a whole, I don't think he's got a message that really inspires people. And I think, and I also wanted to touch on, I, um, I thought that Pete Buttigieg's, whole idea this this uh tone of belonging was really fresh and new that we we never heard anybody talk about that before and i think it was very effective it made me feel good yeah yeah for sure i mean it's something that we um all seek i think but we don't 
I don't think I've ever heard anyone put the put it right out there like that. And I think that was um, very effective. Um, so how do you think um, Joe Biden, I mean, I think we're all sort of pretty confident that um, he's going to end up with the nomination, but how does he sort of grasp that positive and um, forward-thinking um, I, uh idea and get those, how does Joe Biden or Bernie, if he ends up with a nomination, how do they transform their message that, so that it reaches young people? You know, I, I remember I was talking to an, back in the day, I, I was talking to an operative about, you know, difficult candidates and, and how to get them to do what you need them to do. Right. And, and, and I remember her telling me, she was like, no, you know, like if you have a candidate that doesn't want to knock on doors and, and, and drags their feet or whatever, then you don't knock on doors. There's no sense in trying to make them something that they're not, you know, do well, something true. different, have other people knock on doors, have them call people. And if they don't like calling people fine, like go to meetups, like, but do something, just accept who the candidate is and make that work. Right. And I think that's what we're going to have to do here. Um, Joe Biden, his entire ethos, his message, his his his, you know, raison d'etre of his entire campaign is we're going to return back to the days before Trump. Now, I am not certain that that is a good message. I'm not entirely certain that that is a plausible scenario. However, that's what we got. And I think that, that if you, you know, at the end of the day, like if we win this election, it's going to be because people just don't like Trump. You know, I think Joe Biden be an amazing president. You know, he's certainly qualified for it. Uh, you know, I have no doubt that he would surround himself with intelligent people who would make good decisions and work very hard and, and, and do what's best for the country, you know, that, that, that wouldn't, you know, be concerned about whatever the next land deal is or, you know, whatever the uh, next branding opportunity might be. Um, And so that would be refreshing, uh, you know, but that being said, like it is going to be about returning to normal. Like that's what it's going to be. It's going to be anti-Trump. Let's get back to no corruption. Let's get back to, you know, putting the country first and yada, yada, yada. I don't think there is a forward looking message out of Joe Biden. Um, you know, and that's fine. Uh, but I think that like, you know, trying to engineer one may not be, may not yield. the best Yeah. That's result. a really good point. You know, that's a really um, good point because it, it looks fake. And yeah. Yeah. And I think, it. especially when you're talking about young people, the first thing that you do, the first thing that will turn off any younger voter is in office is, is something it's inauthentic. Right. Um, yeah. I agree. And, and so, I mean, I think you look at young people and you're like, look, like at the end of the day, like we need to fix climate change. We need to we need fast, swift action on that immediately. We need to address health care quickly. We like, you know, there's a lot of issues that are very urgent to young people and those can be used to motivate. Um, and hopefully that will work. Uh, I, I think it probably has a, at least has a fighting chance. Um, you know, and I think that like hammering, you know, on climate change and healthcare will probably drive a lot of turnout. Um, you know, but I, I also think that like, you know, trying to turn it into a whole like 
we're going to make sweeping change. We're not changing much of anything. We're bringing back a guy who's been running for president since 1988. All right. Like there's nothing, there's nothing new here. <laughs> um, you know, so, so I think focusing on the issues that matter to young people, the issues that matter to our core constituency groups, um, you know, is, is really what's going to be, you know, where the rubber meets the road and whether or not we can get the turnout that we need to win the election. I, I, I hear you. I agree with you. Thank you. I'm going to pass it to Tim. You ready, Tim? Good, good evening, Mr. Joyner. Thank you for being with us tonight. Um, My pleasure, Tim. First question right off the top. Let's let's just assume that the two nominees are Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Does that turn Georgia into a battleground state in the presidential race? Well, I think that you have to accept that Georgia is at least on some level a battleground state regardless. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm not really sure how much marginal difference Trump makes it better or worse for Republicans or Joe Biden makes it better or worse for Democrats. Um, I will say that if you know Joe Biden's the nominee and he picks Stacey Abrams as his VP – then there's no question that Georgia is likely a, a, a heavy battleground state. It's certainly a, a reasonable chance to go either blue or red. Um, you know, but I think that just simply the demographics in Georgia, uh, and, you know, we have a larger uh, minority population than we've had in the past. It's been growing. It's also been getting more and more engaged. But also you've been seeing a lot of change in the suburbs. You know, growing up in the 90s and 2000s, you know, the, the, the donut around Atlanta was deep, deep red, and that was the basis of the modern Georgia Republican Party. And that donut is melting away into the ether. And as long as those suburban votes are becoming more moderate, more independent, and even more blue, I mean, you know, Dunwoody, which was the, like, I mean, the most Republican place in DeKalb County for generations – Dunwoody is a Democratic stronghold, you know, with a Democratic House rep, a Democratic state senate, a Democratic mayor, a Democratic council like Dunwoody. That's insane to me. But it shows you that these suburban communities have been going more and more um, Democratic and, 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 you know, and further out, you know, more and more moderate or independent. That is going to make Georgia a battleground state regardless of who's at the top of the ticket. If Biden picks Stacey Abrams to be a VP, which is at least a possibility, well, then absolutely. You know, but I think that from here on out, you're going to see Georgia be a competitive state in the presidential election for the next generation probably. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted to ask one more question about Georgia while, while we're on it, uh, because you've done a lot of work, of course, with um, so, uh, some folks in the state legislature. Well, we just got a – an email from the state party in which they announced that 187 legislative Republicans have Democratic opposition this year. That is a record going all the way back to Reconstruction. Now, I believe the split right now in the state house is like 103 to 75, something like that. The Democrats need to pick up like 16 seats. And a lot, a lot, a lot of those competitive seats now are out in those donut counties that you're talking about. Are we looking at a scenario where possibly the Democrats could 
entertain thoughts of flipping the state house this this year? You know, I mean, flipping the state house is a tall, tall order. Um, but you cannot win if you are not going to play. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that we got the candidates on the ballot to begin with is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think people have a full appreciation for the organizing effort that that requires. Um, you know, having been, you know, when I was working with the Young Democrats, you know, we were one of the groups that was relied upon. Like, if we needed to find a candidate in X district, like, you know, all the membership organizations, you know, would be called upon. Be like, who do you have? Do you have anybody who can run for this? Um, it's, a, it's a hard thing, and it takes a long, long time and a years and years of planning in order to find people just for the handful of competitive races that you're trying to run. The fact mm-hmm. that they can do that and also fill in a lot of these other places because – you know, you want to have somebody running everywhere, even if they're not going to spend, you know, put up a great amount of a challenge because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if you catch lightning in a bottle. You don't know if someone's going to have to drop out because they're scandalized by something or whatever. You know, so you really want to you really want to try to get somebody in most every race that you can. The fact that they were able to do that, I mean, that's, you know. Let's see, there's 57 – so there were 49 legislative seats that don't have Democrats running in them or something like that, right? I mean, that's incredible. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, you have to applaud the organization that got that done. And then, too, yeah, absolutely that this, this provides the opportunity to take out, you know, enough, you know, uh, uh, representatives to give the Democrats a majority in the House. It's still going to be a tall order. It's going to mean that if, if you were talking on, you know, November 6th, 7th, whenever it is, uh, you know, that the Democrats have won the House in Georgia, it's going to be because a couple of crazy things happened. Like we had somebody drop out at the last minute. We had somebody get arrested. You know, some Republican got you know, carted off to federal prison. You know, something like that is going to have to happen once or twice, and then the Democrats are just going to – otherwise have to pull an inside straight and get everything to go their way, you know, whether national political, national political, uh, 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 you know, winds blow their way and, you know, we get some good statewide ones as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to leave the uh, two Senate races for David and throw it right back to him. David? Yes. Well, I mean, Billy, we did talk about that in the pre uh show, if you will, like you, you discussed in that. So we have one, not one, but two Senate races. We knew we were going to have uh, David Perdue running for his first uh, re-election, but then the other one just happened when Johnny Isaacson had to step down for health reasons. Uh, Brian Kemp has appointed Kelly Loeffler, and she has not been received probably as well as she has hoped, and uh, Doug Collins, I guess, senses that, and he's running against her, and we have uh, um, multiple Democratic candidates running in both races. Kind of how do you see these uh, two races breaking down, and you can attack them one at a time since they're different? Yeah, and so, you know, the first thing, it's worth a disclaimer, you know, probably at the beginning of every show y'all do, and, and I should have made it myself, is that, you know what, ever since Donald Trump got elected, I am not entirely sure exactly what the hell is going on anymore. <laughs> um, you know, uh, there's a lot that, that, that doesn't seem to follow conventional wisdom. And 
uh, you know, so having that disclaimer, the other thing I'll say is that this Senate race has been really hard to keep up with exactly what's going on. Um, so the, the, you know, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, what I understand what's going on, we have two Senate races, one Purdue, he's the regular Senate race that he is up, you know, um, and then we have the, the, uh, the Isaacson seat. And that's going to be up, and that's going to have that election. They're going to be elected on the same day, but with the Isaacson seat, that is a jungle primary, which means that Loeffler, who was appointed by the governor, will be running with every Republican and every Democrat that qualified for the seat, right? I actually um, think it's not being called a jungle primary, but a jungle election, because it's not a primary. If someone well, right. if someone comes out with fifty percent. Plus one, they will win. Right, which there is no way that anyone's coming out but, with fifty one with fifty percent. Like, there's right. no possible. But that's way. but but that's what it is. I mean, it's not right. It's not titled a primary. I just I'm just to be clear. Sure, um, and I guess it's just because it's an old term from when they did it in the in Louisiana. I think that's what they called it. Um, but in any event, um, so. The Loeffler seat's the really interesting one because Purdue is Purdue. There's one Republican. He's got the president's support. There's no, there's no challenge to him within the party. You assume the party is going to be behind him, such as the party would be behind anybody. Um, you know, beating him will be tough for that reason. Uh, he also has a lot of money. He has access to even more money. Um, that one's going to be tough. Um, the, Loeffler, the, the Isaacson seat is a much easier, you know, attempt. Uh, and, you know, that's the one, I'm pretty sure that's the one we have Reverend Warnock. Um, but along with that, we have ex, ex-state Senator Tarver, uh, Ed Tarver out of Augusta, um, and a couple other Democrats of varying uh, 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 activism in the party. I don't think there's anyone that's ever a big name. And the other one is the one that we have, Teresa Tom- – this is against David Perdue. We have Teresa Tomlinson, Sarah Riggs Amico, John Ossoff, um, and a whole bunch of other people that most people probably haven't heard of. Um, so right off the bat, everyone agree with that? We, we, that's, that's, that's where we are with this. And Matt Lieberman is in the side that's the uh, Loeffler seat, if you will, or Isaac right. seat. He was uh, – some, maybe somewhat surprisingly – was leading the Democratic side with like a 11% in that UGA poll, which was, I don't necessarily think, the best poll I've ever seen. Well, probably not. And I think that, you know, since Warnock is going to be the establishment nominee uh, for the Loeffler seat, um, and he's just now gotten in the race, and he doesn't have a very high name ID. You know, frankly, Matt Lieberman, you know, I mean – to the extent that people recognize, like, oh, Lieberman, like Joe, like, I guess that will give him some name ID. But at the end of the day, I don't, I don't see how he has a path to victory simply because, like, I don't see where he gets his money and I don't see where he gets his support in Georgia. I had no idea he lived in Georgia. Uh, you know, until he ran. <laughs> um, I know that Warnock has got connections he's going to get a lot of support 
uh, from a lot of people across the country is going to get plugged into uh, 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 Stacey Abrams' network. She is going to help him get a lot of money, I'm pretty sure. So I, I feel pretty confident that, that Warnock's going to have, have the easiest path to uh, get the broad base of the Democratic Party support. The question is, is that whether or not that can be enough to get over one of Doug Collins or Kelly Loeffler um, in order to get to the runoff. Uh, that will be the question with them. Um, it's going to be a mess. There are so many people <laughs> running. Like, it's just going to be a bloody mess. And, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, when it comes down to it in November, hopefully we'll have one strong Democrat. Most likely it will be Reverend Warnock, but one strong Democrat, you know, that's that, that in that Loeffler seat. And, um, and then, you know, whoever emerges in the primary against Purdue will have enough of an, of an organization and a name um, in order to give them a decent challenge. Uh, I, I have no idea who that might be coming out, you know, that's with uh, Tomlinson and Amico and Ossoff. I mean, you, know, you could flip a coin between those at this point in terms of who's going to emerge. Um, I'm not sure. You know, I don't know if Ossoff can pull the – same kind of money he pulled for his representative or you know congressional election from a couple of years ago. Um, I don't know if Amico can you know pull together what her lieutenant governor campaign was and, and turn that into something. I mean, you know, I know that Tomlinson had a rough start and it seems like she's doing better now, um, but I don't know if that's something that can be built to last. And I can't. I don't see where anybody is guaranteed to have the money to run a statewide election that could unseat David Perdue. Yeah, you're right. Fundraising is going to be key. And I guess as the reports come in at the different uh, markers, we'll, we'll know more and more. Well, Billy, before you leave us, um, tell folks where they could follow you on social media or anywhere else you might share political information. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm I have a public Facebook profile if you want to search it, but really the best place to get me is on Twitter at Billy Joiner, just at B I L L Y J O Y N E R. Uh I am snarky and dragging Bernie Bros all day long these days. <laughs> <laughs> well thanks again, Billy, for coming on. Bless you for that. <laughs> Thank yeah, I know you, it was sir. my pleasure. Anytime guys. Yes. Thanks, Billy. All right, Billy, Billy Joyner, um, who's now a lawyer by day, but still uh, pretty insightful from his past political work early earlier in the um, millennium, if you will. Um, but now let's turn to that Super, uh, Super Tuesday primary results, which were just fascinating. I think I told you all um, this was like the Super Bowl of um, you know politics that day. So many states – uh, coming with so many surprises, really. Um, Catherine, what was the kind of most surprising or, or interesting result to you? Well, I was just, I was just really blown away by the support that uh, Joe Biden managed to uh, conjure up in that just that two days uh, between the South Carolina. I mean, I'm sure that there, a lot of the support was already there, but I think that that win in South Carolina really um, buoyed him into uh, Super Tuesday. And I was also surprised at the, I mean, I'm not, not surprised, but, um, yeah, I guess surprised 
at the lack of support that um, Mike Bloomberg had. I mean, it was pretty embarrassing, really, um, how few votes he got. You know, I saw some rundown of how how much uh, it costs per delegate for every uh, every candidate, and it was pretty amazing. Um, but those, I think those were the two takeaways that that Joe really brought it back and um, really surprised me, and then the lack of support for Bloomberg. Yeah. Tim, your your thoughts on Super Tuesday? Well, I, <laughs> it was thought that Joe Biden might do better than previously thought coming off that big win in South Carolina, but even the most optimistic of Biden supporters could not have envisioned the total domination of Super Tuesday, but winning 10 states to Sanders' four and and basically effectively ended the campaign, especially of Bloomberg and of Elizabeth Warren. Um, everything fell into line for him. Uh, those endorsements of candidates leaving the race, a huge surge of black vote, voters in the South, uh, winning states outside of the South, uh, competing in California where they were really worried that Sanders might might run it up and turned out not to do that. And the other thing he wanted to accomplish his campaign was to turn it into a two-person race, and, and and that's where we are now. But when we look back, guys, we can now really see what happens uh, simply Mike Bloomberg crashed and burned in spectacular fashion in that debate, and then Joe Biden won South Carolina big after turning in his own impressive performance in a debate. And I think what happened is that people who had been drifting away from Biden, previous supporters who went to Bloomberg, just turned around and came back. As Biden went up, Bloomberg went down. He went up in a big way. Bloomberg went down in a big way. So, um, you you know, it's it's, it's hard to see now uh, how we can say Joe Biden is a strong front runner as a result of what happened Tuesday night. So. Yeah, I mean, obviously, what Joe Biden did in the South, in Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Alabama, um, mm-hmm. that's where he really got his delegate margin because he won those states so overwhelmingly. I mean, he he theoretically may have won a bigger delegate margin out of, say, two of those states than Bernie Sanders might get out of California if he wins that thing by, say, eight points, which is about what the margin is now, although it's been slipping. But the amazing thing was was um, his strength in the Northeast. He won Maine and he won Massachusetts. Uh, another telling thing, voters that decided in the last two or three days in Vermont, Bernie Sanders' home state, broke for Joe Biden. If anybody wasn't, you know, didn't have their mind made up like two weeks ago, Joe Biden seemingly just, you know, swept them up. I mean, all the late deciding voters he got, which was, um, you know, pretty amazing, which let's get into another part of this. Bernie Sanders finished incredibly close um, second in Iowa, and you know what? He could claim first, and I'm sure there's some plausibility there. 
he won New Hampshire, the first primary. States that lack, you know, a lot of diversity. Then when the race turned to the South with South Carolina with a large share of African-American voters, Joe Biden flipped this thing around. Um, Catherine, do you think this result will be a further indictment of both of those states uh, going first? Maybe only one gets to, maybe neither get to, after they seemingly had so little finger on the pulse of the Democratic electorate. I would love to think that that would be the case, but uh, I, don't, I, I just am unclear how – I'm just not sure how, <clears throat> how much the tradition of having Iowa and New Hampshire go first is going to uh, push up against these results and how um, they don't really match uh, the country. I just, I, it's just hard for me to know how that's going to work. So I, I, I can't say right now that, I mean, I think it's telling, but I'm not sure how we're going to make it happen. Yeah, and I think you're right. It may end up being some tradition. I could see them. One state gets to go first. One state doesn't. New Hampshire probably gets the nods because their, you know, results weren't just a total clustery mess. Um, Tim, what do you think this is going to say about those two states and the fact that they were so non-predictive this time? Well, perhaps it was just something that was peculiar to this particular year. It might take a couple of more elections for us to figure that out. It hasn't been so long ago that the state of New Hampshire, Bill Clinton, finished better than he was supposed to finish, and he was anointed the comeback kid, and there he goes. The same thing happened with Barack Obama. There is no doubt that New Hampshire just supercharged his campaign. Um, In Iowa. And, and, well, yeah, it, it was very close, you know, in, in, in Iowa. And all, but there, there is no doubt that those two states historically ha- have meant a lot. Perhaps because of the makeup of the particular candidates and who their base of support is, you know, that, that, that was just bound to to happen this year so so we don't know somebody has to go first you know are, are we going to sit down and say well we need to pick the state that uh, most reflects what the country looks like in its diversity or or do we uh, go with uh, our, our history and say you know these states have gone first in the past and and will continue to do so. I, I I really don't have that answer for you, but but there is no doubt this year that those two states are uh, probably did not tell us who's going to get the the Democratic nomination. <laughs> there's there's no doubt about that. And also, I think the Republican side will have something to say with it because they are, um, you know, they're going to go with a competitive primary no matter what in 2024 and they may be the only one with a competitive primary and where do they look to and because with the media and covering the race in many ways you need to have both sides holding their election in the same place um well now let's move forward 
We have these primaries on um, Tuesday. I guess if you start with an M, you go. Uh, not every state, because Massachusetts already been in Minnesota, but we got Missouri, Michigan, and Mississippi. To me, I think Michigan is the state to look at. Catherine, that's your birth state, your home state. Is that a absolute must win for Bernie Sanders? Is it lose it and you're out? I think so. Um, he wouldn't say that on the morning shows this morning, but I I can't imagine he's not thinking that. Um, I mean, if he doesn't win and win pretty well there, he's he's going to have a it's going to be a tough task. There's no 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 doubting that. But yeah, I think he's got to win it and. I'm not so sure he will. I, I think, uh, I mean, I haven't talked to a lot of people up there, but Michigan is not, I mean, there's certainly pretty strong liberal pockets <laughs> and left-leaning pockets, but it's it's become a much more moderate state over the last couple of decades. So I think Biden has a better chance, but, uh, the, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm no good at, proselytizing so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna guess but i i definitely think it's a win it has to be a win for uh, bernie or he's gotta figure out what he's gonna do next yeah tim um bernie sanders won minnesota last time and i saw a map and he and and counties that uh, he beat hillary clinton and he beat her in so many counties in the minnesota primary last time He lost them to Joe Biden and some to Amy Klobuchar. They still went for her, uh, even though she had dropped other race indoors. Joe Biden, to me, that seems pretty predictive. If Bernie Sanders is going to take a stand in Michigan, how does he do it this time? Well, that is a good question. Uh, There are a lot of African-American voters, you know, in in a couple of big pockets up there, especially around Detroit, and they're going to come piling out to vote for Biden. And he's been doing fairly well also with suburban voters uh, uh, in the rings around these major cities. Uh, the polling, as as you know, has been trending toward Biden in recent days. Uh, even if Sanders were to hang on and win there and win Washington close, he will probably still go out of the day with uh, a negative pickup in delegates because Biden is going to win in huge fashion in the state of Mississippi, so big that he might sweep all of the state's 36 delegates. And, you know, if if Bernie picks up 10 delegates in Michigan and 10 in Washington, well, everybody can do the math. He's favored in Idaho, North Dakota, but they don't have hardly any delegates. There's 352 delegates out there this week, Uh, and 125 of them's in Michigan, 89 of them is in Washington State. He needs to win those two states first of all, win them, and he needs to win them by a pretty good margin. And it just doesn't look to me now like that's going to happen in either state. As a matter of fact, Biden could actually uh, win both of them. And I agree I agree with you. If, if that happens, it, it, he ought to stand down because the calendar is not going to get any better. 
Yeah, and there's a little bit of a legacy. I think in 2016, um, he was kind of like this novel protest vote. It was kind of like, I think a lot of people may have felt Hillary Clinton was inevitable, and that was their chance to say that, you know, she wasn't perfect. And I was a Hillary Clinton voter, so, you know, I'm just speaking for them. And that now that's kind of gone away because he has really underperformed almost in every state. I mean, I mean, he's... Uh, did worse in New Hampshire. He didn't do as well as he did in Iowa. I mean, it, it's really um, – it's across the board. And if he loses Michigan, that was his big signature win last time. That's what extended the race last time. So if he loses this or just barely ekes out a victory, because then it is – you know, it's essentially one-on-one. you got Tulsi Gabbard still in the race. Um that that really will just be just another sign that this thing's over. And I guess next week, if he does get out and it's just Joe Biden and Tulsi Gabbard, we can do a deep dive on what's she thinking. But until then, <laughs> it's been the Cozy Vine. Good night, guys. Good night. Right. We are the heirs of that first revolution for a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world.